Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and once again, we've come to the time of the year when otherwise normal business people turn into fortune tellers who try to prognosticate what's going to happen next year. Before we gaze into the future, let's blow the dust off the 2022 predictions to see how we did last year. So, first prediction, we said identity fraud would change consumer behaviors for fear of falling prey to a perfectly spoofed email, website, or text. What happened? Well, consumers fell for phishing attacks and identity-based scams at a record pace. Social media account takeover attacks jumped more than a thousand percent in one year. Prediction number two. We said the shift from identity theft to identity fraud would accelerate as a result of increasing data breaches. What actually happened? Well, the year's not over yet, but the number of data compromises reported in 2022 do not look like they will total the record set in 2021. Prediction number three. We said the ripple effects of the pandemic-related fraud would continue into 2024, and other forms of benefit fraud would emerge. What happened? Well, you know, to be honest, this wasn't much of a stretch. Unemployment benefit-related identity fraud continues to be reported at rates well above 2019. That's because cybercriminals have figured out ways to automate the application process and have expanded into tax return fraud and student loan scams. Prediction number four. We said that supply chain attacks would pass malware as the number three root cause of data breaches, and ransomware may catch up or surpass phishing-related breaches. What actually happened? Well, again, the year's not over, but by the end of September 2022, more than 90 supply chain attacks had impacted more than 1,600 organizations compared to only 60 malware-based attacks all the way through Q3. On the other hand, ransomware-related data breaches are down, primarily due to the war in Ukraine and the volatility in the cryptocurrency markets. Prediction 5. We said that re-victimization rates would continue to increase and a new, quote, chain of victimization, unquote, would emerge, especially social media account takeover. What happened? Well, identity criminals attacked social media account holders in record numbers, individuals and small businesses. 27% of individuals lost earnings from social media account takeovers and 87% of small businesses lost revenue. In our final prediction last year, we said that cyber criminals would shift toward alternative digital payment forms as the payment method of choice. What happened? Well, there is evidence that cyber criminals are losing faith in gift cards and cryptocurrency as the illegal tender of choice, as scams involving instant payments and instant fund transfers are becoming ingrained in consumers' daily lives. Now, it's time to stare at tea leaves toss around some rune stones, shake our magic eight ball, and predict what's going to happen in 2023. We recently recorded a conversation about what to watch out for in the next 12 months with John Breo from the National Consumers League and a member of the ITRC board, along with the ITRC's own CEO, Eva Velasquez. Welcome, John. Welcome, Eva. Hey, thanks for having me, James. It is a pleasure to be here as always, James. And it's a year later. So it's that time of the year that we all love, which is what's going to happen next year. 
Um, and this has certainly been an active year, as we just heard. So we no reason to believe that 2023 will be less active. In fact, uh, based on the on the conversations we've had outside of the earshot of all of our friends who are listening, um, it's going to be a very busy year. Um, so why don't we just get to it? Um, so Eva, let's start with you. Um, one prediction number one: identity criminals will increasingly rely on impersonation using PII gathered through compromises, phishing, and social engineering to open new accounts take over non-financial accounts like social media, and impersonate government representatives. This is almost a softball because it's it's so much of what we're seeing later in the year, you know, in 2022. So I have no reason to believe that this isn't going to continue into 2023, mainly because it's it works. It's so lucrative. And I'll really focus on the social engineering aspect of it. My goodness. The, the bar to entry for these scammers to be successful is so very low when it comes to social engineering because you really don't need any type of technical expertise. They just need to know how to talk people into, into doing what they would like, into giving them the information that they would like. And we still have so, so many folks who are being talked into giving away their OTP, that one-time password. And the reasons sound so legitimate. So many people think they, they might be helping a friend. You know, they get a, they get a reach in from somebody that says, oh, I, I lost my phone. Can I use your phone number to send me the code to get into my account? And the, the recipient of that message doesn't realize that's not actually the person at the other end of that account that you think it is. Their, their account has been taken over and now it's being used to try to take over your account. And people just say, oh, yes, I want to be helpful. I want to help a friend. And they're, they're, they're handing over those one-time passwords. Um, they're passing them out like Halloween candy. So I don't think this is going to go away. In fact, I think it's going to continue to significantly increase in 2023. John, you have any thoughts on on particularly the, the social engineering and, and and the social media? I mean, that's a, that's 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 one that just kind of came out of the blue a little over a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly, um, I, I agree with Eva that the barriers to entry to this uh, are are low. Um, I would say, however, that the criminals themselves have all the data that they need to make their pitches sound convincing. Right to know who the friend is to reach out to mm-hmm. to maybe have some information to add to their social engineering pitch that makes it sound convincing. Um, you know, all of that data is coming through um, not only data breaches uh, but also uh, the you know people putting things on social media that they shouldn't um, and allowing people to know, like for example when you make your friends list uh, public, um, that lets the big, big dollar sign to scammers. Um, in terms of giving out the one-time password, you know, that's, uh, that is a, a, uh, a technical challenge that I think, unfortunately, um, even though I'm somebody who, who I, I try to use sort of authenticator apps instead of SMS uh, for my one-time passwords, until we get to a point where people can use uh, 
either some sort of physical security, like physical security keys, um, that'll be a vulnerability. Just so we we kind of uh, help people along with scaring them, what should <laughs> what should people do to avoid this particular uh, kind of problem that we're highlighting here? I mean, the good news on that, James, is that it's a pretty, it's, it's the, it's simple, but not easy because those stories are so convincing. But I always tell people that code, it says right on the message, that code is for you and only you don't share it with anybody. So I don't care who is asking you for it and how legitimate the reason sounds. You are only to use that code to sign into that specific platform. Don't share it with any third party ever. So that's, that, that's the, the first step. And then to John's point about leveraging things like the authenticator apps and other technology that can help to um, just not make that a, a, an available vulnerability to exploit, that's the next step. Yeah. And, and I would add to that to say, you know, I, I'm on a mission in 2023 to get as many people I know to start using password managers as possible. Because even if the hacker does manage to compromise one account, uh, preventing them from reusing that email and password combination on other accounts uh, is uh, your ability to do that is much better if you're using a password manager, whatever possible. I'll add my own. And that is, if you don't post it, they can't (laughs) use it against you. (laughs) So be very aware of what you're putting on social media. What you might think of as being innocuous, the bad guys might see dollar signs. Prediction number two, this one is the only one that kind of surprised me of of this list. Once I thought about it, it made perfect sense. And it is sort of the natural evolution of a scam that's been around forever. Mm -hmm. So what we've always thought of as the romance scam, but there's now a new twist on it. So Eva will talk about that. What I'm seeing the growth in is the ability of these scammers to build non-romantic relationships with people and still talk them out of large sums of money. And I, I think that we as advocates probably made the mistake in assuming that a romantic relationship was the only vehicle that these scammers could use to talk somebody into parting with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we are talking with people in the call center where that isn't the case. It's not about romance. It's about connection. We just talked to a couple in the call center who lost $180,000 to a relationship scammer. This person wasn't trying to, you know, build some kind of uh, romance and be a couple with one of the people in the couple. It was just a friendship and, you know, talking about different types of investments and can you help me out with this, this potential business deal and, uh, you know, just all the excuses in the book, but it was about the connection, the shared human connection and not romantic at all. They're so lucrative. I do think that we should probably, I do think that we should (laughs) probably, Wait, um, hold on just a second. Let's see if Tucker is going to. I, I don't know if he saw a squirrel or think, what. No, Tucker's agreeing with me. I think you should leave yeah. this in. I think that Tucker <laughs> is making my my case for me, saying yes, I agree with you, Eva. We should no longer call 
this type of scam a romance scam. It should simply be called a relationship scam because, you know, all romances are relationships, but not all relationships are romantic. And there you have it. John, do you want to weigh in on this one? We also know these um, by the term affinity scams. Uh, so you share an affinity uh, in terms of uh, similar ethnic backgrounds, similar uh, uh, language backgrounds, similar religious backgrounds. Um, you know, you could we we you find people just listening to 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 the dog barking. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of these scammers coming out of sort of. Um, you know, FrenchBulldogLovers.com. Um, you know, if you share something in common with with someone else, that builds trust, right? We we're, we we can both talk about um, you know our dogs or our our, uh, our our religion for a long time, and that's what builds the same kind of trust that allows an ask for money to be agreed to. In the same way that a romance scam, right, is because mm-hmm. you know at the end of the day, you trust who you're in love with, you trust somebody that you've been talking to for a long time, um, and so you know not to get too philosophical about it, but at a time in you know our history when people are increasingly disconnected from one another, um, institutions that used to bring us together are uh, you know no longer do that. Where people can find these communities. They tend to glom onto them mm-hmm. uh, um, much more passionately, and that is an opening for scammers. Unfortunately, yeah. one of the things we think we're going to see because of a current trend, and that is more uh, groups being targeted based on their ethnicity uh, and taking advantage of uh, either uh, a language skill or lack thereof, uh, and. And that's something we haven't necessarily seen a lot of historically, but we're beginning to see it now. Um, Eva, what you think? Well, it's we have always seen groups with limited English proficient, proficiency targeted, but I I do feel like the the scam it was it was kind of. Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they were very defined. Um, it, it was, it, and, and they weren't big dollar amounts that we were looking at. And now I just feel like we keep, I'm, I, I know I'm hyper-focused on all these large dollar losses, but my God, they're so heartbreaking and record-breaking. Um, and with all of the confusion with the government programs currently, non-native English speakers and and immigrants to this country are exceptionally vulnerable because they don't necessarily understand how these systems work. And let's keep it real. A lot of us who were born and raised here don't understand how these systems work either, but there's just so much of it that's legitimate. We had so many programs through um, um, the CARES Act and through the, the, the pandemic response to COVID where there was money that was available to people that, that wasn't available before. And it's so very confusing. And right now, the, the probably one of the biggest ones that I'm sure we're going to see an uptick in is student, uh, student debt and student loan relief. It's so confusing. Where are we really, you know, where do you put the application? Is it happening? Is it not? Can we expedite this? And then when you add that layer of someone who is maybe less proficient with 
English. Um, and that also falls into the, you know, there's a lot of different communities we don't necessarily think of um, that, that fall into this bucket, even the, the deaf, hard of hearing community where English is not their first language, ASL is. And so all of these folks, when we add that there are legitimate programs, they're confusing and the scammers are leveraging that. I just think that we're going to be seeing a lot more of this. It's always existed, but I do see it growing significantly and just hammering this, this population because they only have to get it right once. The scammers only have to get that person and say the right thing in the right way one time to be effective no matter how many other times this that individual um you know either let it go got help or advice or just didn't answer respond to the email the text message or the phone call so we do think it's going to grow yeah and, and i would add to that i mean when you're talking about specific ethnic groups uh, or immigrants who have limited english proficiency um you know there are a lot of unique vulnerabilities to that population um, that I think make them particularly enticing uh, to scammers. So um, number one, uh, you know, what do I do when I get an email or a text message I'm not sure about? I Google it to see if somebody else has heard about it. Well, chances are if I Google that, I'm going to get results that are in English. And so if English is not your first language or you're not, uh, or you can't read it at all, um, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a safety valve that's not going to be available to you. Um, number two, uh, these are often populations for whom government agencies are uniquely, um, uh, uh, create a unique sense of urgency. Like when a government, impo- when, a, when an imposter scammer targets them, mm-hmm. someone claiming to be with immigration, for example, um, can create that sort of emotional fight or flight uh, uh, state of mind that scammers are relying on. Um, and then, you know, number three, I would add that, uh, the, these are, uh, for particularly immigrants who are, uh, still sending money back to their home country using alternate payment methods like wire transfer, like peer to peer transfers, um, may be less of an immediate red flag than they would be to um, someone who doesn't regularly use um, those payment methods. So I, I definitely think that that you know those are uh, unique vulnerabilities. Um, oh, that's such a good immigrants. point, John. About it's it's all about how you use these different platforms. And you're right, people who are accustomed to sending money overseas because they do it for their family, it may be you know far less of a red flag for them. Excellent point. Well, speaking of sending money, uh, the next prediction, John, I'm going to turn to you. And this is really talking about the the increased popularity of the instant transfer apps that a lot of people use now that, uh, you know, historically, you know, we've transferred money that it, you know, you might as well just put it on the pony express and somebody will get there. Uh, now we have instant financial transfers and there's a lot that comes with that. Um, why don't you talk about that and, and what's happening, particularly in, yeah. in, in pu- public policy? Yeah. So, you know, uh, chances are if you've had to split a bill, a, a bar tab with somebody or paid a babysitter uh, anytime in the last two or three years, uh, you've just said, I'm going to Venmo you the money. 
The problem is that that same instantaneous nature of the payment um, and the fact that you can send it to somebody with only an email address or a phone number uh, makes it incredibly attractive to scammers. And so what we've seen is that fraud rates on peer-to-peer apps has exploded. Uh, unfortunately, right, once you send that money, you are not protected under federal law. We hear from consumers constantly who realize within minutes some, sometimes that they've been defrauded, do what we've been telling them to do for years, which is call your bank immediately, tell them what happened. And the bank says, sorry, there's nothing we can do. The money is gone. And, uh, you know, we are not obligated to make you whole. We're now seeing uh, what we strongly believe is billions of dollars in fraud being uh, uh, fraudulent payments being sent over the, these apps. But I do think that the numbers don't lie. The fraud on this, these platforms is, is, is far higher than other types of payment. And I don't think that Congress or the CFPB are going to be able to ignore this problem for much longer. Eva, I know you have strong thoughts on this because we've talked about them. Your prediction, which kind of, kind of touches on this, is this concept of generational activity on this topic of, of just how you interact with the digital economy and the mm-hmm. digital world. Talk about your views and then work in what, what John just said, because look, everybody who uses these things loves the convenience and nobody thinks it's a bad thing until you lose money. To John's point, and I agree with everything that John said, um, I think trying to figure out where the responsibility lies is is going to be the challenge the fight to protect consumers will it will trickle down and it will help all generations even though they do engage differently the the dollar amounts with younger generations they tend to be much smaller it's just because they don't have they haven't had a, as much time on the planet to to build that wealth Hopefully, we'll be able to find that middle ground between abdicating all responsibility from people when they make choices. They chose to send this payment. They chose to conduct this transaction, um, but also understanding that it's gotten so it has become so complex out there. We need to do more to protect folks when they're trying to make those decisions. And I've already seen some, you know, a few changes. I'm seeing a lot more um, education on some of these instant payment platforms where it's like, are you know, used to ask, are you sure? Are you ready to initiate this payment? And now you get a little uh, consumer education along with that. Are you sure? You know, it's like, hey, remember, scammers will use this. Is this and the, the government won't ask for payment this way. And uh, so there's more education going on. So let's change gears a little bit here. John, you mentioned password managers earlier, but we're now getting to the point where we're actually starting to see a, a glimmer down the road of a passwordless future. Both Google and Microsoft have tools on the drawing boards. Apple has actually put them in place on their mobile devices. And it's a concept of a pass key, not a password. So from a technology perspective, what that means is if you, you there's no way to lose control of the of the credentials that get you into an account because they never actually leave your device and they're random every time you use it. So that creates a much more secure login process and it protects us from ourselves. Um, how, though, do we get people 
to adopt these kind of new methods of protecting themselves because they are so foreign. And to a lot of people, just like we talked about this generational issue with payment apps, security is a generational issue too. So put that out to the two of you. How do we help people transition from the password to a world where you can secure yourself with a tool, but that tool's so foreign to them? The path forward for that is to take the choice out of consumers' hands. And I know that's going to sound <laughs> callous, but uh, you know, when was the last time you actually had to update your browser? When was the last time you had to update your OS? Right. Remember, every time you logged into your Windows machines in the past, you had to click the install updates now thing. Years ago, uh, you know, Chrome started doing automatic updates. Uh, Apple automatically updates on iOS now. That is a step forward for security. Like, I don't forget to turn in my updates because it's not even a, a, an issue I have to worry about anymore. So I think how we're going to get rid of passwords is by not letting people use passwords. My iPhone out of the box automatically will read my face um, to unlock itself. I think that's how we're going to address the, the, the generational issue you talked about, um, which is that people are going to want to use cool stuff no matter what age they're at. And if you make it easy for them to be secure in how they use it, then they'll use it. Well, the good news here, John, is that I, I agree with you. And I don't think it's callous. I think it's practical. And and that was going to be my answer as well, is we don't make it optional. We just say this is, this is how your accounts are secured and this is the new way to do it. Of course, uh, here's that wonderful phrase, there needs to be some consumer education so that we make sure we aren't leaving people out of engaging digitally and and that we uh, provide them with resources to show them how to use these new updates and technology. But by saying, no, this is how it's done, that will absolutely um, help us make the shift. I, and I don't think there's any way around that. Okay, last topic. Um, and John, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to soapbox for a second, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. And you can soapbox to, uh, as a follow-on. <laughs> and, and, and Eva, I know, will join in. And that is... Um, you know, we came as close as we have been in my memory anyway, of passing a comprehensive privacy law, um, in the U S, uh, mainly because of all of the reasons that, uh, we've, we've discussed ad nauseum over the years of, we have data breaches. There's too much, uh, not enough consumer control, too much data being collected, um, in, in the marketplace, you've got states passing their own privacy laws now, which are, are more restrictive, very comprehensive, um, and but Congress did not act. And, and, the, and the version of the bill, which, which got to committee in the House, uh, had uh, some things that uh, uh, various organizations thought could be improved, uh, including the ITRC when it comes to the data breach notification, because we see so many issues now arising from the fact that there's not enough data being included in breach notices. So you can't really, you don't know how to protect yourself because you don't know what actually happened. And that's a new phenomenon. We had not seen that until this year. What do you think is going to happen in the new Congress when they come around in, in January? And what do we, what, what needs to be done to get our truly get our arms around some of these what are seemingly intractable issues. 
we, we came closer than we ever have to, um, uh, to passing comprehensive uh, privacy and security uh, reform in this past Congress. Um, and that's because there was compromise. There was compromise between uh, consumer and public interest groups like mine uh, and between business. Uh, and we had a, um, uh, a confluence of factors in the sense that um, more states were passing bills that, um, uh, that you know, various stakeholders either liked or didn't like. And so there were enough people who thought we could get a comprehensive bill to solve problems that existed that we were we got further than we ever have. We got a bipartisan vote in the House Commerce Committee. Some of the factors that I saw that allowed that compromise to happen in 2022, uh, I don't think will be in place in 2023. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think the next window for this is going to be after the next presidential election. Um, and in the meantime, we're going to have states uh, who are going to continue to take action on this because I think that those leaders in the states recognize that privacy and data security reform can't wait. The longer you wait, the more people get harmed and that there are solutions that people can agree to. Um, so while I have, I, I am bearish on a uh, bill in Congress in the next year, I am bullish on more bills coming out of the states. Okay, Eva, pick your animal. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm going to be a Pollyanna here. I'm going to say that while I, I think John is right and I agree with everything that he said, I'm going to let hope spring eternal that even though um, there will be more polarization with the, the lawmakers that hopefully they are looking for something that everyone can agree on. And to me, this is a pretty easy thing. It affects everybody. It's not a partisan issue. Uh, maybe this will be the thing that that unites our our lawmakers, and they decide that this will be a, a flag that they want to stick their stick in the ground for themselves. Yeah. Now, I know, I know, I'm being um, very overly hopeful and overly optimistic, but I still. I still want to be hopeful. Well, as you said, hope <laughs> springs, springs eternal. eternal. <laughs> well, you know, the good news is we're going to find out how much of this actually comes to pass because we're going to be right back here a year from now having the same discussion. We will update <laughs> these predictions. We'll, we'll, we'll play Battleship. Were they a hit or is it a miss? And, and uh, we'll have a whole new set of predictions for 2024. John, thank you. For joining us today, Eva, it is always a pleasure. And and for our special guest Tucker, we're glad you joined us today. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. You're some of my favorite people. <laughs> uh, we I love it. I love talking with you, John, and of course James. We'll do it again soon. You can learn more about the scams that impact your identity, privacy, or security, or get help if you have been the victim of an identity crime or compromise by visiting the ITRC's website at idtheftcenter.org. The week following Christmas, we'll have a bonus episode of the Fraudian Slip that is an expanded version of today's discussion about instant payments and money transfer services. 
over at our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown, we're taking the rest of the year off, but we'll be back in January with Season 4. Thanks to each of you who listen to our podcast and who come to the ITRC for support and information. From all of us at the ITRC, we wish you the happiest of holiday seasons with your friends and loved ones and a safe, prosperous, and secure 2023. Thanks for listening.